0: So first, I also like to thank Diane um, for inviting me. It's uh, a pleasure to be here and presenting some of my um, work, and I already very much enjoyed. Uh, The presentation yesterday and today, especially because I think I uh, really can uh, take uh, or borrow a lot of things uh, from the former presentation, especially from today, um, to save some time uh, and uh, then focus more on on the things which I might uh, contribute to the general discussion. So, what it is here is I really ought to try to focus on the main theme on networks and power in legislative bargaining, so political decision making, and I try to. Um, uh, describe my ideas and the derivations on a formal uh, model which is a socially embedded legislative bargaining game. I will come to this in a um, second. Um, So um, the basic idea maybe, and here I borrow from uh, the ones uh, who already have presented, but uh, just an idea, so I skip all the answers. If we talk about networks and power, one thing what I'd like here to, to contribute is that um, many, many studies just use networks um, and to describe power whatsoever. Right. And uh, But um, here I really try to use networks as one ingredient of power. So I try to show how political power really depends on specific network structures. And I will have two different um, um, uh, points to start, where I have different networks, different mechanisms, how networks really translate into power. now. Generally speaking, before I come to my specific things, is um, if networks have an impact on power because networks can have an impact on coalition formation. And if it comes to formal decision-making, constitutional choices, constitutional rules, basically work through to power over coalition uh, formation. So which coalitions, winning coalitions... uh, which subsets are winning coalitions and which not. And here networks can restrict this coalition formation and so network structure have an impact on power. A second way to introduce networks into um, power is if you are working in political exchange models the kind of uh, France, but also the one of Coleman or Puppy uh, Laumanok and then uh, once um, it, um, you introduce that exchange, there are exchange barriers because of trust problems, then networks can reduce these trade barriers. So, networks might be determinants of transaction costs in political exchange. And so, network structure can really explain the outcome of political exchange and finally the power or the capacity of different actors to determine final political decision making. So, this is the second way where networks really um, can determine power and the last one is information diffusion um, so if information finally um, makes or can change um, political preferences or political ideal positions then of course the way information is transferred between actors so within specific information networks has an impact on um, uh, um, the, the capacity to determine um, final political outcomes. And uh, here is also where this time, I worked very much also in this part, but this time I will focus on the first and on the third part. Related literature because of the time I just want to mention is of course, which you know, Lama know Papineau, but also more recently Jackson and Gollop, they nicely have a very uh, uh, theoretical model on how information networks um, have an impact on uh, to make the right or wrong decision as a collective, um, if you're interested. And well, I would skip the other ones. Uh, if you are interested, I can come to this later. Now, then the general outline is, um, I first like to make a very simple clear what is my argument, because I, I, I might get lost once I get to the formal model. So I will first give a general outline that you are able or I am able to explain myself a little bit better. Then I try at least to give you a sketch of the formal modeling and how I come to this. And I will finally derive a generalized power index which has both influence, meaning changing the perception or changing political preferences. And on the other side, um, um, constitutional rules and uh, specific ideological um, uh, distances forming the formation of, or determine the formation of coalitions. So this is what I, I, I will do then. And then in the third part, I will apply this theory to uh, the European Union. And as an example, it will be the agriculture policy outcome. And I will definitely, basically show the, the calculated power indices for the different actors. And there are, will be different uh, power indices, depend, stretching different aspects of political power and also different aspects of networks. Okay, so now, without going too much into detail, um, and one easy idea we would wish to have is, thinking about political power, is that a final political decision alpha simply is a weighted sum of ideal positions. So C is the power of an actor I, and YI is the ideal position of actor I. This is basically, if this actor would be the dictator, this is what the actor would like to, the policy to be. Now, if if we really can come up with a model, I will come to this, where the final political decision really is simply the weighted mean, then this weight makes sense to uh, be understood or interpreted as the political power of an actor I. So I will come to exactly this thing. Now, um, but uh, thinking about power in these terms means that preferences are exogenous. So um, I have the power to get my political position um, into the final political decision with the weight of C. But this is only my real power if my political position is really exogenous or at least only determined by myself. If now this political decision, uh, position itself is influenced by other actors, then they indirectly also have some power in terms of thinking about an initial position. And if this initial position, this final political position, is determined by initial positions of other actors, then we have another way of political power, which I call, and not only me, political influence. But now keeping to this simple thing, one way to do this formally is doing this... Power indices of cooperative voting games, they try to capture this. And another thing, and this is what I'm suggesting here, is I will derive a kind of generalized bunch of index out of a non cooperative legislative bargaining game, the one <laughs> of the Barry Faradon type. So, this non cooperative legislative bar- uh, bargaining game from barrel Faradon, I will modify it a little bit, and then I'm able to derive this generalized bunch of index. So, because one of the major criticisms on these voting games are twofold. First, they are not a real model of political decision making. They are just something. And the second is that they are based on cooperative game theory. And this is both not true for this game. It's non cooperative and it's, a, it's like the peripheral model. It's a model, a true model of political decision making. But we have to keep in mind all these things, these power indices, depend on the coalition structure. It's quite obviously for this one, but it's also true for the peripheral thing. So once you have determined the superset of winning coalitions, based on this, you know which actors have this opportunities to finally get their position through into this uh, political outcome. I will show this. So now, going further, and if we now next assume that uh, the ideal position of an actor, j. And it determines or comes from what the actor likes the the world to be, so Z is a vector which describes the status of the world. S of Z is what any actor likes as the status of the world, but we have to consider that the policy simply is, is transformed into the state of the world. And this transformation can be, oh, normally it's nonlinear, I call it political technology, but this transformation of policy into policy outcome, the state of the world, this is the political technology. And of course what you like or not like as a policy depends also beyond what you like as a state of the world, depends on what you think the political technology is. But nobody knows the political technology. I don't, you don't, nobody knows. So it's a fundamental uncertainty doing policies. And because of this, you have to learn. And if you want to learn, so you have to learn what does it mean if I have a flat tax rate. What does it mean if I pay subsidies to a declining sector? You have to learn this. You don't know this. Nobody knows it. And now, learning means once you do experiments, once you do specific policies, you're getting feedback. You see the state of the world, and based on this, this is like a signaling, you can form beliefs or update your beliefs of the true political technology. Now, I will develop this a little bit, and we can show that um, it's easy once you assume that different people make different experiments, and experiments are also um, noisy signals, and this is an idiosyncratic noise, then of course collectively learning makes sense. To learn collectively means simply you do an experiment, I do experiments, you do an experiment. And so if we share our experimental um, information, then we have simply more information. This is what is political communication is about. But the thing is that if I communicate about policies, I do not communicate directly the technology. What I communicate is my political position. Things like flat rate is good or subsidies to farmers is a good thing or is a bad thing. This is what is communicated. So political positions are communicated. And now one can show, and this is what Foto will do in our next paper, one can show that a simple and averaging rule over communicated positions finally is a mechanism, We show this, of information aggregation. So you really learn much faster about the true political technology doing the simple things like give me your opinions, and I simply built the average, some weighted average, and I'm better, I'm learning much, much faster instead of doing it on my own. But, and now the but comes, doing this is also, this position also depends on what you like as the state of the world. So it's also biased. It's not only information, it's also biased. And now we have a trade-off, Foto will we'll elaborate on this. But because of this, we have some informational rational of political influence. I like to be influenced by other people or other organizations because I know I learn. And as long as I assume or know, whatever, that learning is more than being biased, I still do this. And this is now what I use here. I use, and this is again simple, that this information aggregation works like this. It's in a network. And out of the network, there is a specific weight. It's a generic weight. And an initial position. In, i'm i'm building my final political position as an initial as a weighted sum over initial position of actors in my network and we can having observing empirical networks one can simply calculate these multipliers i would do and then combining the two things we have um, a general oh sorry we have a general measurement of power we have first and to what extent communication networks determine these weights? To what extent initial positions determine positions of politicians? And we have to what extent constitutional rules determine the um, um, political power? I have to explain this a little bit more. It's the constitutional power of different actors, right? With this um, modified bertrand game. Okay. How do I do in time? Bad, I
1: guess. Yeah. No, you have six minutes. Wow.
0: Um, okay, so I skip the formal part. and this is the well yes, but I try. So this is uh, the setup of bare John basically, right? It's this non cooperative legislative bargaining game. I skip this completely, okay? So, but I try to give you an intuition. Basically, what Barrett Fairjohn do is, they assume to get a legislative decision-making, it's a bargain. The bargain is that I want a specific policy position to be the final outcome, but I need support from a winning coalition to get it. Now, what people do is they try to form winning coalitions for their position. But um, they are in competition in forming this. And so normally it's a simultaneous game, but we cannot model simultaneous games. Game theorists can't do it. So what they do is, they simply do, let's do a sequential. And what they do is, it's a generalization of the Rubinstein uh, bargaining model of alternating others. They simply have a random recognition rule. So everybody is selected randomly, first randomly. And then it's the one who can form a winning coalition. He makes a proposal, and all the other actors can say yes or no. If finally all actors or sufficient actors, the winning coalition, says yes, we have a political decision, if not, the process starts again, and again one is selected. Where Faradjohn assumed perfect information, complete information, and it's a stationary sub-imperfect national figure they one thing, I cannot uh, leave this uh, because I really have some problems with these non-corporated guys. If you ask them, wow, it's great, can you do this? I have a little, little legislature, only 10 legislators, and I have a decision, only three dimensions. David Barrett said to me, I have no idea how to solve my model. I cannot do it. OK, so I changed it a little bit. I only assume that this process of going for a decision or not going for a decision is a stochastic process.
1: And then formally,
0: it's called a quantum response equilibrium. Once you do this, I skip this completely. I do not explain this. It's easy to solve and you can solve it. It's not easy to solve, but you can solve it. Also for a lot of actors and a lot of dimensions. That's what I did. Solving this thing is exactly this. The outcome is that we can determine a probability C for each actor that his proposal is the final outcome of the game. So the outcome is stochastic, which means it's a lottery over proposals. Based on this lottery, because legislators do not like uncertainty, it's easy if you presume or anticipate this, then you can do better by saying, okay, we do not go into legislative bargaining, we know the outcome is the lottery, so we will find a common proposal which we all prefer against the lottery. And this common proposal is simply the mean voter. It's simply the weighted mean over the proposals, and the weights are (coughs) are simply the probabilities which we can calculate from the game. And these probabilities basically determine on the winning coalition set. Now, and first thing is, and if we simply assume that these probabilities are only determined stochastically, so it's a 0.5% uh, uh, chance, 50% chance, that I go for a decision or not, so meaning that all have basically no different policy preferences, then more or less the bunch right. of index comes up. It's not exactly the bunch of index, but almost. Now, one can say, well, but that's not what we have. We have different policy positions, we have an ideological structure, and everybody knows that if it comes to me, Netherlands and Germany form a coalition in European agriculture policy. Now, if we anticipate this, we still can't do this calculation, but the coalitions are no more the same. So, a specific coalition has no more the same probability to form. Because if I need, let's say, Spain in my coalition, which doesn't like milk, it's much harder, it's a much lower probability than if I have only friends in the Netherlands. So now we can calculate this. It's not so easy, it took me two years, but now we can it. So we can calculate this perfectly. I did it. And so we have these indices also if we assume there is an ex-ante coalition structure, which is the network. And I can show you the calculated indices with and without these anti coalition structures. Next thing, and then I have to stop, um, is, so this is the the solution I skipped, the last thing is that we can um, calculate, oops, um, this one, we can calculate based on these initial positions And the final position head, which finally go into this mean voter, and the nice thing about it, if we write this in matrix notation, then um, this comes out as a very nice kind of a Hubble index, basically. So once I have a communication matrix T, meaning who communicates with whom, it's non-trivial, I can calculate the same. The main thing I also need is the eigenvalue. So I have to know how much weight I put on my own initial position. Like, I'm an expert, tell me what you want, but 100% I go with my position. If I say, well, only 80%, then the eigen weight uh, is only 0.8. Now, if I have the eigenweight, eigen, yeah, yeah, and, and I have the communication matrix, I can calculate it. If I can calculate this, this is my in, <coughs> influence index. And this is exactly what I did for the European Union. One minute. Great.
1: Right.
0: And uh, so, one minute. And now the empirical part, I mean... <laughs> <laughs> I calculate the thing. and, uh, well, I, I, I spent the two minutes, okay? Um, just because, otherwise you cannot understand, then it's only number crunching. Um, if we talk about the European Union, especially the common agriculture policy, we have governmental institutions, we have non-governmental institutions, and um, governmental institutions basically is the European Commission with the Director-Generals, basically um, um, agriculture, but not only. We have the Council, the Council West and the Council East, um, um, with the member states of the EU-15 rest, and the new um, Eastern European member states of East. And we have the parliament, um, um, uh, with the different groups in the parliament, and we have the non-governmental actor. Basically we have COPA as a supranational farmer organization, but as a supranational consumer organization, we have all the other non-farm organizations and non-consumer organizations, supranational, and we have national, the same thing. And uh, I made a study, actually two studies, network study very similar to what you uh, this morning said. So basically we made personal interviews, I started um, with uh, over 300 interviews in all these states. But the network I'm showing you is only the Brussels network, the supranational, also there are national actors, so it's 113 actors, non-governmental and governmental actors. And uh, the results are this, this is simple. This is this generalized bunch of index, just to give you a picture. These are the big states, Germany, UK, Italy, and France. And these are the other ones, I will not go into this. So this is the political power index, and this is, has to be divided by 10,000. So roughly, big states have a power of 7%. Constitutional rules, no um, um, ex-ante-coalition restrictions. Okay. And now, the first thing is, if we do now um, Ex-ante coalition restrictions, no influence yet We see at least, I cannot go into detail, the power changes The white one is with this ex-ante coalition formation and the blue one is the old one So we see at least there are some changes, I cannot do more And uh, this is in, in the aggregate, in the aggregate we don't see so much changes And one thing I like to say in the aggregate, the big change happens if we change constitutional rules So, for example, agriculture policy at the moment, the first three, is decided by the consultation procedure, but now it will be, even this this year it will change, decided by the co-decision procedure. Basically, the co-decision procedure moves the the power from the commission to the European Parliament. And we see it here. Here's the parliament. It has power, constitutional power, when uh, we decide under the co-decision procedure, and the commission has no power, and the commission has the power if it's still the computation procedure. Otherwise, there are not that many changes. Now, um, the second part is, I skipped this, but here you see the influence network. So we see that different actors, also interest groups, over this communication thing, have influence, um, political influence, meaning they can determine the position of agents. But it goes vice versa. Not only politicians are influenced by interest groups, but also interest groups are influenced by politicians. This is what you can see here. I cannot go into this, so I have to skip to the main thing. Now, the, the main picture here is, what you see is now, the big changes, power outflows, once I introduce political influence. So, what you, the only thing I want you to see is, these are big changes. This is the difference between constitutional power and power including influence. And you see the counts are really loose. And the interest groups, of course, win. They can only win because they had no power before. But the commission is also a winner. Because the commission is very influential. And the last slide, sorry, and then I'm stopped. I have to skip all this. And the last slide I'd like to show you is, remember, there was a big, big change in the constitutional power. Once you come from the consultation to the co-decision procedure. Look at this. This is the power of the Commission, it was zero before, almost no change. This is the power of the Parliament, yes, there is some change. Council West, almost no change. Council East, almost no change. Interest groups, almost no change. What does it mean? If we consider communication networks, policy networks, they are a buffer against constitutional shifts of power. We can see this clearly. So nothing will happen for the agricultural domain. Yes, of course. It it depends on the network. I mean, but basically, once you have a network that is so simple, then uh, these multipliers will always buffer in constitutional changes. Right? And that's the main message. Thank you very much. Thank you for giving me the time.
1: Well, we have uh, six or seven minutes for questions.
0: And what is the network? Yeah, the network is twofold. First, we have a network um, which determines um, the position in the ideological space. So we have a network of ideological distances, and right. these ideological distances, which is a network between actors, determines the probability to form a coalition, and this determines the so constitutional of not a, a social network uh, measure. Well, it's a network. And, uh, yeah, yeah. Okay. Yeah, so uh, <laughs> second. And, and, and ideological distance is definitely a social network. And uh, the second network is a communication network. That's pretty much what Lauman, no, no puppy always asks. So we ask and to whom you deliver, uh, send information, from whom you receive information. And okay. we use confirmed network ties um, always. And this uh, is also calculated, these influence measures are calculated on the confirmed network type information exchange, sending and receiving information. It's an asymmetric network of course. And from there we can use this kind of Hubble index to derive this weight of the mm-hmm. initial position. And on the basis of the distances of the initial positions, uh, so the, the smaller the distances, the stronger the tires, or something like that? No, uh, the so distance is the network uh, and, and it goes into this. Um, this is the probability that an actor chi will, will be on the, on the coalition of an actor L. And this is uh, uh, simply, this is the ideological uh, distance measure. And so you simply get this probability. Yeah, yeah. And this is the weight thing, how much you weight this distance. So if you weight it by zero, then this thing will go to, to two. Two one half. Huh? So one network exists and the other is a, is a social network. Of course, I love to play the devil's advocate.
1: And I have a number of questions. And maybe they are for clarification, because you were pretty fast in the, in the presentation. So now you derived a non-cooperative uh, power index for what we would call cooperative decision making. And that's great. Uh, you extended the, the baron furgen uh, model. modified. Modified it. Uh, making it possible to, um, to arrive at solutions for multiple actor sets and multiple positions, but it comes at a cost. Mm-hmm. And the costs you mentioned, uh, one rapidly and the other more extensively. The first is, uh, if I would be very I'd say, wow, this is a tremendous achievement, but you introduced endogeneity preferences, while in general uh, in, in general models, rational choice models. On the models, preferences are taken exogenously. Um, so what's the real fundamental advantage of, of, of what you achieve when you have to assume endogeneity of preferences? Because you're using a political uh, technology, but in the end the, 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 the structural characteristics is
0: Shh, sh- answer. I do do this. I, I modified the peripheral drone game without any endogenous preferences. Okay. So the modification runs. Everything you see here is with exogenous preferences. Okay. The generalized power comes in once you understand this is now the power from baryferidone. And now you have ideal positions which are exogenous so far. And now we make them endogenous. Then it's endogenized. But I can do the complete thing without any even touching preference. OK, great. Okay, great.
1: And the other one is that you, you, you briefly mentioned that you need an excellent coalition structure. And that, that's a power factor <laughs> that's imposed on the system due to elections. Is that what you mean? Or do you need some uh, external network? Data? Because then I would say, how dependent is your equilibrium upon
0: different coalition structures that you imposed on the So, but this is already by a, a You have a constitutional decision-making procedure, which is a binary preference and the random recognition rule. And this binary preference is simply that it determines uh, on the superset of all subsets, it determines this superset. If they go for, for for a proposal, then the final constitution goes for the proposal. Mm-hmm. So basically, mm-hmm. once you have constitutional rules, any constitutional mm-hmm. rule, you always can come up with the superset of winning coalitions. Mm-hmm. And that's exactly what drives my initially. And that's the same thing which drives
2: I ask a paper, uh, question that asks you to step back from the specific arguments of your paper here for a second, and just I'm interested here in the relationship between um, game theory and network analysis. And um, actually, I had a s- seminar with some of my students this summer, and we read we read Matt Jackson's book, and we sort of had this conversation as well. And it, you know, I mean, I, I appreciate what you're doing, and also Matt is doing the same kind of thing, and. Um, you know, really what the, proje- the overall intellectual project here is to try to reconcile um, the kind of individual level, first principles kind of approach to theory with network analysis, um, which sometimes can be more, um, the effect can be, a sociologist might say, sui generis, right, or there might be a, there's a, some sociologists would say you can't really uh, derive network behavior from first principles, because once you get to the network, you have a phase transition, like you've moved from bio- from chemistry to biology, where you have something new. So I guess obviously you think there's a huge benefit here to reconciling the two levels of analysis. But what do you think are the costs? So what are you? What if I come along and say I'm not going to try to derive my network models from first from first principles from individual level kinds of incentives, and I just throw I just throw that out. What is what is the cost of trying to do what you're doing in terms of reconciling these two levels? And, and I'm asking philosophically,
0: philosophically, not
2: just with regard to no. your particular application.
0: Yes, I, I see. It's a. I think it's a tough question because that's not what I. I mean, um, I have I have other work where I skip more and more um, away from micro base. This is, seems very much micro base, and it is. Okay, so I introduce networks. By the way. Networks here are, and this is where sociology comes in, exogenous. I do not explain any network ties; They are exogenous, right? Which is important, because if you really want to understand what is going on, you might want to know why do we have this communication network and not this. I don't explain this. I use the structure as it is, so one thing. But um, the other thing is that um, it really depends on what you are trying to model I think here, it perfectly makes sense um, to still have this kind of micro-founded um, um, results so that you really skip or that you really introduce network structure into micro models, that's basically what I, what I do, and uh, then, then uh, see what will be the outcome at the micro level. And um, that's um, in this specific case, I would argue collective decision making, that's really nice. I mean, it's my model, I know everybody likes this model, but I really think that's nice. But in other circumstances, and I, I think that this is really a disadvantage because you overdo this thing, you put too much of the results you finally generate into the microstage already. You don't see this, but it's simply true. And so then basically you assume what you later observe. And this is a shortcoming, or it's always a danger in these micro-founded models. You know, if you want to explain complexity, and the main, mo- ma- most people, especially game theorists, put in exactly this complexity on the micro level. But this is simply assuming what you want to explain. And that's, that's a problem, and I think an advantage of the in general, of this network approach, or maybe also sociological approach in general, is that they simply don't do this. And so they, they, don't, they cannot fall into this fallacy that they basically put in their micro model what they later observe. It's only so complicated that normal people don't see it because you cannot do the math. But once you can do the math, you see directly. Hey, that's what you simply assume.
1: We have to to stop here and have a fifteen-minute break now and reconvene at uh, four. So thank you very much.